Welcome to episode 19 of Shellshocked. This week, we'll be discussing the topic of pro-social behavior, including an interview with rock star turned nonprofit activist Belinda Carlisle. So if you're ready to reposition yourself on that naughty or nice list we hear so much about, then brace yourselves for Shellshocked. If the listeners will indulge me, I want to start out this episode with a personal story, Marilyn. Okay. Have you ever played that sort of getting to know you game where people ask you to tell something about yourself that most people don't know? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. They do it at parties and offices and things. And I had to do that recently. And I disclosed for the first time, really, something that I've been doing for years, especially since I moved here to the Bay Area. And I thought I would share that with you and the listeners to get us started on this discussion of pro-social behavior. All right. Pray tell. So here's my story. Uh, My confession. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever I'm out shopping, I keep an eye out for umbrella sales. Now, this might seem a little weird, but every now and then, especially in the summer when people aren't buying them, stores will have two-for-one sales or a big bin of them that are half price, really cheap. And I clean the fuckers out. <laughs> like, I fill the whole cart with these little umbrellas. Okay. Usually the small ones that collapse and, you know, and you can carry them in your pocket. And then when the weather changes and we have a rainy spell, I like to carry a bunch of them around with me and hand them out to people who have forgotten their umbrellas. Seriously? That's and so I've sweet. even pulled over to the side of the road sometimes to hand them to people standing at a bus stop or something. Whoa. And I know it's it's a silly little thing and it you know it's not a heroic life-saving act, but it's a small act of kindness that's relatively inexpensive, but it has a really big emotional impact on people. I can imagine. How did this start? You know, I just saw someone at a bus stop one time and I had an umbrella in the car and I just pulled over and said, "Here, And she was just so overwhelmed because she was drenched, you know, it's miserable (laughs) to be caught in the rain or forced to stand at a bus stop getting wet and cold, you know. And so it's this huge joy to them that that now they can be drier, you know. Wow. So it cost me a couple of bucks. They get to keep the umbrella. But, you know, who really cares? Uh, It still fits the definition of pro-social behavior because I'm making somebody else feel good and, you know. It cost me a little something. But interestingly, it doesn't fit the definition of pure altruism. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. So I'm sharing that story only as an example of this week's topic, which is, as I said, pro-social behavior. And for the listeners who might not have a background in psychology like Marilyn and I do, it might be helpful for me to start out by giving a few definitions uh, as we proceed. So. In psychology, the term prosocial behavior generally refers to any voluntary, purposeful act that benefits another person or group, regardless of the motivation for doing it. So, ironically, it's kind of an umbrella term. Uh, benevolence, on the <laughs> no, other sorry, hand. I just got it <laughs> a little slow there. Okay. The, benevolence, <laughs> on the other hand, this is 
a specific act that is beneficial and also purposeful that doesn't provide any external reward for the person doing it. So they can't get paid for doing it. They can't get a tax write-off. They can't lure someone into having sex with them. <laughs> there can't be any kind of external benefit. So let me give an example of that. Um, let's say I go to SeaWorld and I feed a dolphin so he'll do a trick for me. That's benevolence because I purposely gave him a treat which helps him, but my motivation was that he, I want him to do a trick for me because it pleases me. Okay. Another type of pro-social behavior that psychologists study we call altruism. And the distinction here is that the helping behavior can't be motivated by any external or internal reward. So, for example, if I feed a hungry child because I think it's the right thing to do, that's altruism. Because my motivation is different than when I fed the dolphin. I'm not doing it to be entertained, and I'm not purposely doing it to make myself feel good, although that might be a side effect. My motivation is to help. Right. So that's altruism. So far, so good. But in my experience, people don't have a problem with those first two. But there's a third category that gets tossed in and tends to shake people up. And I tested this recently, as you may know, on my Facebook page. I got some really interesting results when I did that. I asked people to give me an example of what we call pure altruism. Now, this refers to helping behaviors that can't provide you with any sort of reward, even internal. So you're not allowed to even feel good about yourself for doing it. Mm -hmm. No external reward, no internal reward. I can't give you an example of this one because as social psychologist Robert Cialdini points out, it doesn't exist. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, except what if, uh, and I was thinking about this when you wrote this, okay. um, what if you, and I guess this, it, it, if you die through your act, yeah. So give me an example. Well, uh, you uh, jump in front of an oncoming car to push other people out of the way. So you end up dying, but the other people don't. Okay. So here, and it might seem petty, but here's the explanation. <laughs> okay. In that moment between you making the decision to act and dying, you felt good about you it. You felt good about it. Okay. And therefore, it can't fit the definition of pure altruism. Yeah. I, I, I do agree. Uh, you know, a lot of people do look at altruism and they put out um, internal, you know, rewards as not part of it. And then they find a lot of uh, examples about it. But, yeah, if you include both, I think it's very hard to say that there is any act of true, pure altruism, like you said. Right. And the interesting part of my little Facebook experiment isn't just that a lot of people posted examples that, you know, were easily um, knocked down, I guess you'd say. <laughs> it's also that I got a few people got kind of upset by the question, even though I hadn't made any judgments about people's reasons for helping. Some made the common assumption that anyone who gets something out of helping must be doing it for the wrong reason. And mm -hmm. so a few people said eventually well, what are we supposed to do? Just stop helping each other? Right. And of course, I wasn't saying that. What I was trying to do was kind of reframe this and say, it's okay if you get something out of it. Well, and I guess, you know, um, we have, evolution has made it so that we do find it reinforcing to do exactly. something for other people. Exactly. Uh, and, that's, and that's okay. Yeah. 
In fact, knowing what motivates people to be helpful is really important if we want to try to encourage helpfulness in society. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we can turn to the research. And by the way, considering all the current events that are going on right now, related to this topic we've got mm -hmm. the syrian refugee crisis the scapegoating of mexican immigrants and muslims by people like donald trump i mean it, it might benefit us to take a look at how we can encourage pro-social positive behaviors exactly so i wanted to point out a couple of things from the research um first of all evolutionary psychology has something to say about this uh, one of the most important things that they point out is that there are actually genetic differences between humans uh, in their helpfulness. Um, we know this because of twin studies. Identical twins share 100% of their genes, and even though metagenetics tells us that sometimes the genes get turned on or off, if you look at this in children, that's less likely to be the case. Uh, identical twins are much more identical when they're little than when they're adults. Oh. And so one of the things that they'll look at, if they can, is uh, twins who have been raised separately. Identical twins raised in separate families, for instance, which we had a few weeks ago, uh, Nancy Siegel on. Mm -hmm. and that's one of her mm -hmm. specialties is looking at twins who have been raised in separate families. But even when the twins are raised in the same family, it still gives us some hint at the helpfulness factor that's genetic. Uh, what they've the conclusion they've come to is about half of our helpfulness is the result of our genetics. Oh. That's pretty big. Yeah. We also now know about a phenomenon called inclusive fitness, which makes us more likely to help family members than non-relatives. And, you know, they do some really interesting studies um, in which they tell stories to the subjects about things like house fires or whatever. And there are various people trapped inside and uh, you can only save one person. So they list these people and they say things like, you know, very close relatives like your parents or your grandparent or something like that. And then there are also more distant relatives like cousin or second cousin. And then just to throw in the mix, a neighbor or a friend or something like that. And not only do people choose to save the person that they know more, you know, that are closer to them emotionally, but they also, within those closenesses, they tend to choose the people who share more genes with them. Really? And they don't do this consciously, apparently. It's something that's built into us. Hmm. The last thing I wanted to talk about regarding this is probably the most significant, um, for me anyway, it's that social psychologists have also found that people engage in pro-social behavior to manage their own emotions and their moods. Hmm. And this is something called negative state relief model, and it's been studied extensively by two social psychologists named Robert Sheldini and Douglas Kenrick. And according to this hypothesis, one strong motivator for helpfulness is to relieve our own sadness or fear or other negative emotions. But this isn't just guesswork. They've tested this hypothesis in some really creative ways. First, since other studies, not to mention personal experience and common sense, tell us that helping other people is rewarding and uplifting and it generally makes us feel good. So these researchers attempted to put people into one of three moods, either a bad mood, a good mood, or what they called a neutral mood. And they did this by showing them video clips or sometimes reading them stories that are either, you know, some horrible story or something uplifting or just a bunch of facts to, you know, satisfy the neutral mood. And once their moods can be assumed to have been altered, then the researchers give the subject an opportunity to volunteer to help out some cause. And what they generally find is that the people in the neutral mood are the least likely to volunteer. But here's the surprising part. 
the people in the bad mood are the most likely to volunteer. Really? Oh, yeah, wow, that is you would surprising. think it would be the people in the good mood, right? Because yeah. they're in a good mood. Why wouldn't they? Nope, they come in second. But there's huh. a catch. This only works under certain circumstances. In order for people in a bad mood to come out on top in the helpfulness study, two criteria have to be met first. First of all, the help that they're volunteering for has to have a large impact. So, for instance, volunteering to help out, say, the American Cancer Society, that will show more of an effect than if they're given an opportunity to help out a local softball league. Mm -hmm. And second, the help that's being offered has to come at a low cost to the subject. So they prefer to do things like sitting at an information booth than going door to door trying to raise funds or something, which would take a lot out of you. Or hit a button on the computer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here. <laughs> so Here, these have studies show a strong tendency for us to help ourselves by managing our moods while also helping other people. And I think it's really interesting stuff. And it's something that we should all be aware of, that there's a science to this sort of thing. And studying this doesn't mean that we're trying to prove that people are basically bad or even that they're basically good. It simply means that the more we know about why and under what conditions people will be pro-social the more likely we can create that in our society and help everybody. Yeah. Um, and given all the things that go on in this world, we do need to study all those kind of things and, and how to how to benefit the most people. Um, and just because you get something out of it doesn't mean that's, like you said, a, you know, a bad thing. That's, that's right. just the way we are. That's right. And coming up, we have an interview with Belinda Carlisle, who's going to tell us about a charity that she helped found there in uh, India that does exactly that. And can't wait to get to that interview. I know, me too. Being an animal lover, uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing her speak. Great. Let's get it started. Our longtime listeners will know that we've talked to rock stars of science, rock stars from the secular world, and even rock stars of magic and mentalism. But I have to say, this is the first time we've actually had a real rock star on the show. For those of us who came of age listening to 80s pop music, our next guest requires no introduction. Belinda Carlisle rocketed to fame as the lead singer of the Go-Go's, the most successful all-female band in history. With hits like We Got the Beat, Vacation, and Our Lips Are Sealed, they sold millions of albums throughout the 1980s, and with the help of the newly launched MTV, their music, as well as their youthful antics, were a constant source of entertainment, helping to shape a generation. Not to mention, contributing greatly to women getting a foothold in a medium long dominated by men. After their eventual breakup, Belinda Carlisle enjoyed a successful solo career, with such blockbuster hits as Mad About You, Circle in the Sand, and Heaven is a Place on Earth, to name just a few. Miss Carlisle has agreed to come on the show and talk a little bit about her life, her career in music, as well as a more recent foray into humanitarian work with the Animal People Alliance, a nonprofit she co-founded in Calcutta, India, that uses a unique model to simultaneously improve the lives of impoverished women, as well as rehabilitation and saving abused and abandoned street animals. Belinda Carlisle, welcome to Shellshocked. Oh, thank you. Hi. I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk about your nonprofit Animal People Alliance. And I have to say it fits perfectly with the topic this week on 
pro-social behavior and altruism. And we're going to get to that discussion in a little bit. But first, I always begin my interview by asking people how they got into their chosen career. And I have a feeling your story is going to be a little bit different than some of the other guests I've had on the show. (laughs) So I know you've told this story a million times, but maybe I'll ask you to tell it again. All right. Well, you know, I mean, actually, the only thing I remember when I, I grew up in Burbank, California, in Thousand Oaks, California, and really the only thing I ever wanted to do in my life was to tr- see the world. And, you know, my, I remember my mom used to have these little books that we'd fill out every year, you know, uh, the four kids, five kids, and it turned out to be seven kids eventually. But we'd be given these books to put in, you know, um, what we wanted to do when we grew up. And I always said travel agent. And because I thought that would be a good way to see the, the world. And, and then I decided when I was a teenager that being a, a rock star would probably be a lot more fun um, <laughs> way to see the world. So, But, you know, I, of course, that was, you know, just dreams. And, and you know, I had no real um, experience with singing or anything. Um, but in 1976, I was a part of these small group of kids, which was the very beginning of the the Los Angeles punk movement. Um, there may be fifty kids, and every, and everybody was in a band, and so um, and they were terrible. By the way, most of them were pretty terrible, but great terrible. And so you know, we were. I was sitting around with three other girls, and we thought, let's form a band. Okay, and and somebody tapped. Um, Margot tapped the bass. Um, Jane tapped rhythm guitar. And I had a choice of either playing the drums or singing. And I had played the drums briefly in a punk rock band um, called The Germs, the, the drummer that never played, actually. And I didn't want to do that because that was just way too much um, energy expelled. And I was way too lazy for that. So I thought, OK, I'll sing. And that's how I started. And And I didn't know how to sing. But back then, you didn't really have to know how to do play an instrument or know how to do anything when it came to music. That's what was so great about the punk movement. It really was, everything started from a, you know, ground level. It started in the garage. It was really organic. And it was just one of those things that was meant to be. And so I got to travel around the world and, and be a rock star. And I really believe that, you know, when I look back in my career and it's, you know, this is 40 years ago, I'm talking, um, is that we were little manifestors. We just had no doubt in our minds that we would um, be rich and famous and, you know, succeed. <laughs> That's what we wanted to do. Although it was super uncool to say that during the punk days. But, I mean, if you're working that hard, come on, everybody has that that dream. You know, everybody, I, I, I wouldn't believe anybody who would say, oh, I never wanted that. But of course, yeah. you know, being a 17-year-old kid, that's what you want. Now it's like who cares, whatever. But but when you're that when you're like that, I think it, you know, especially these days with social media, everybody wants to be famous. <laughs> yeah, you were only in your early 20s when this all started, right? I uh, I was 20 years old when the when the Go-Go's um, started and I was 23 when the band or 22 when the band um, was the number one, you know, the biggest band in America, you know, on the cover wow. of every magazine. Um, you know, yeah. As a psych professor, I'm fascinated by the effect of fame and, you know, instant 
wealth and that sort of thing on people, on their lives, their mental health. And surprisingly, there's not a great deal of scientific research on it. So I'm curious to know, what's your take on that? Do you think that fame can have a positive effect on people or do you think it's ultimately destructive? Oh, well, I think when you're that young, um, in my experience and seeing people around me that we're in similar situations of having instantaneous, um, it's not a, when you're that young and you're, you don't have the tools to be able to handle something like that. I mean, the kind of fame like the Go-Go's had, or, or I can't even imagine what a Michael Jackson thing would be like, but no, it, honestly, it's not, it's, it's, um, confusing and although great, of course, and you're grateful for it. I mean, it's confusing and and there's not there aren't isn't a school that you can go to that that can teach you how to deal with the effects of of success and fame and money i mean you know we were really immature really irresponsible and um i mean it was great of course and and like i said but but you know that's when the whole sort of self-sabotage thing comes into play if you don't believe that you deserve it um you know, antisocial behaviors start um, rearing their ugly heads and, and, you know, drugs, of course, um, addiction, lots of things. But so I don't, ultimately, I don't think it's a, it's a really real positive thing for, for kids that are, um, that don't have the tools to be able to handle something like that. And I don't think you ever really get tools. I think it's just one of those things you have to experience and either you're going to sink or swim, really. Do you think it's tougher for people today who are newcomers into the business than it was when you were starting out in the 80s? Oh, yeah, because everything's on camera. You can't get away from cameras. Everything is about we live in such a celebrity culture where in, you know, and, and you know, everything is documented. I mean, I, I don't live in L.A., you know, all the time. And, and, you know, I mean, I live in places where I'm pretty anonymous. And, and when I go back to L.A., it's always shocking to me to see paparazzi hanging out in bushes and behind bushes and at my grocery store and, and, you know, it's gross. And, 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 you know, if you're someone like a Lindsay Lohan, who, you know, uh, you know, it's, uh, who's been in the, the limelight since they were a child and don't really, I mean, the odds are really stacked against someone like that because you don't have time to, I don't know, to, or, or the space to be able to um, live a healthy sort of um existence and uh, and have a you know a really healthy perspective on things i i think it really 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 colors your perspective being that famous and living in this and in, in the celebrity culture we live in today it's just you know uh, you know it's i don't know i mean i i would think it'd be a much much harder today well as you know i've read your autobiography lips unsealed and enjoyed it a lot and I know that you've had your fair share of ups and downs, but your life has turned out very well in the end. And some might say anyone in your position in her right mind would just settle down and retire. But instead, you travel around the world and to some of the poorest parts of the world, as a matter of fact, and you found a nonprofit organization. Tell us about that. How did that get started? Animal People Alliance. Well, I always wanted to have... Um... A donkey sanctuary. That was like how it started. And then I've always loved India, and I've I've had a lifelong fascination with India ever since I was a young, really young girl. And and I think honestly, you know, I think that's like a past life thing if you believe that kind of thing, which I do because I had like a lot of weird connections with the country. So I thought um, I, on a trip about seven or eight years ago, I was in. Um, 
a city in Rajasthan called Udaipur, and there was an animal hospital and sanctuary there that I went to go visit, and it was founded by um, Jim and Erica Abrams, um, an American couple from Seattle. And I was just like, oh, my God, these people are doing God's work, and this is exactly what I want to do. And um, when I always tell Erica, I want to be you when I grow up, <laughs> because <laughs> because it's just the, the um, I mean, of course, when in that sort of thing, you can imagine, you know, what goes on there. I mean, you know, the street and the plight of street animals in India is it's Im- improving very slowly, but it's still pretty appalling. And, you know, they do dog uh, spaying and neutering. They do education in schools. They have emergency services for animals in distress. Um, they um, have forever homes for beasts of burden, like donkeys and and cows, and because they, you know, they use mules and donkeys a lot for for labor. Um, so I mean, it was, and, and they seem so joyful. And I thought, this is this is what I want to do. I have to figure out a way to do it. So. Um, I also met these these friends of mine who live in Calcutta, um, David Earp, who has uh, this foundation called the Shuktara Foundation, and he's been there for about 15 years. Um, he has a home for boys, uh, well, he has two homes for boys and girls who are for the most part deaf. A lot of them have um, cerebral, I can never say this correctly, cerebral palsy. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. I can, it's a mouthful, but he has quite a few kids that, who are, who do have that. Um, and he's created forever homes for them and he's created this amazing sort of, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole other story, but I, I just, and then Paul suit who works, who is my partner, um, one of my partners in animal people Alliance also works for an organization called made by survivors and they, uh, who they rescue uh, young girls and women from, uh, human slavery for the most part, the slave trade, uh, sex slave trade. So, um, I just seeing the joy in their faces and, and just, I don't know. I mean, I just, it was like something that I always felt a calling to do sort of service work through the past 10 years. I guess it's been, been getting older. I, I feel like I've had this amazing life. I've done everything and I've, I've achieved everything I've ever wanted to achieve. And it's not even about, okay, now it's time to give back. It's just like I kind of want naturally want to. And now I'm spending, you know, I, I live part of the time now in, in Bangkok and and um, it's only an hour and a half from Calcutta. Anyway, to make a long story short, um, Paul Suit, I, he came to visit me in Bangkok and he was talking about starting an animal hospital. And I thought, I want to do that. So I kept stewing on it. I stood on it for a few months and I and I so I called him and I said, can I do it with you? And he goes, sure. And that's how it started. So we have... Um, we had this idea of creating employment, and and one of the things we do, and we're in the process of doing now, actually, is sending um, girls who um, have been rescued and tra- and sending them to our partner hospital, which it which um, is in Udaipur, and I mentioned before Animal um, Animal Aid, uh, Jim and Erica's. Um, uh, charity and they're training them to be veterinary nurses so that's what we're doing is creating employment for these girls and the more more vulnerable populations because there is a caste system that it, that exists in India and mm-hmm. creating a veterinary network um, to help out 
um, a lot of the other NGOs throughout India who are struggling. There's a lot of them out there, but they are struggling um, to help out, to know how to, to um, and to also possibly become veterinary nervous, uh, nurses for the emerging middle class in India, which is, um, you know, growing, you know, day by day. So um, that's what we're doing. Besides, so we're creating employment. Um, Paul and uh, Mara, one of the other girls from Animal um, People Alliance, they're going into schools around the Calcutta area, sending girls out to be trained. We've, um, we're partnering with a hospital in Calcutta called Mother's Heart, um, helping to uh, raise funds to finish the hospital that they're building, a proper hospital, not just a shack. Um, and, you know, really to, you know, the, the end goal really is to raise awareness of the plight of street animals in India and also to change their consciousness towards animals because it's a lot different than ours. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in the way that you describe how some people in India, anyway, um, regard animals. It's very different than the pets that we have here in the United States. Oh, I don't think they understand the concept of pets. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I, I, I think cause, because they have enough problems feeding their families. I mean, there's such sure. the poverty is is unbelievable there, and especially in Calcutta, actually. So, I mean, that's the last thing they want to do really is take on an animal. They don't even think of, I mean, dogs in in Islam are considered like dirty and they scare away angels. There's a lot of religious stigma attached to um, animals. Um, cows, of course, you see cows roaming around on the streets and, you know, killing a cow, eating a cow is considered a crime. Um, there's a lot of things that we can't possibly understand. But I rode in the ambulance uh, with Animal Aid for a day. I went around on on calls with them. And I saw how important it is, especially providing emergency services for animals, because I we would drive into neighborhoods where, you know, someone got hit by a car or there were a litter of puppies or there was a really sick dog. And, you know, everybody comes out of their homes and they want to become involved. And, and you know, that becomes a drama and it in, involves a community about regarding this dog who had puppies. Oh, yes, I'll take care of them. Oh, yes, we'll keep an eye. So you really, I really saw that's where the change of consciousness comes in really is, you know, going into schools is, is great, but also going into communities where there are animals in distress and getting the neighbor, getting the neighborhood involved. And I saw firsthand how important that is. So we're focused in Calcutta right now, um, sending our first group of girls in January. It's been a little bit slow because, you know, the fundraising has been slow, but we have a, a lot of fundraising um, opportunities next year. But, you know, we're getting there and and um, little by little, you know, we've we've you know, we're we're going to, you know, we'll grow. And um, in my mind, I would love to be like Animal Aid in, in Udaipur, our partner um, hospital, who just has such an amazing thing going on. And they've really changed that city. And everybody knows who Jer- in the city knows who Jim and Erica is. Everybody knows the ambulance when it drives around the city. Um, they've really changed how people look at animals there. And that's what we hope to do. 
Well, I have to say, I had a really great time reading your posts online about your recent fundraising campaign, driving a motorized rickshaw across India. Whose idea was that? Well, that wasn't mine, but that's something I would do because it's I love extreme <laughs> things, and that was that was extreme. Um, that was yes. that was Paul's idea. So we drove. Uh, well, first of all, the whole thing. It's not just like okay, I'll drive a rickshaw. I. I had to go to motorcycle school, and I hate motorcycles. I just do. What? I know. So I had to go to motorcycle school to get a motorcycle's license so I could get my international motorcycle's license to legally drive a rickshaw. So because oh. it, it's it's like driving a motorcycle. And, and honestly, I was the only one that did that. And so, therefore, everybody else is too freaked out by it. So I was the one that ended up pretty much doing most of the driving. And um, it's it was about as hardcore as it gets, but it was so great. We went from um, Chandigarh, which is way up in northern India, and in the Punjab yeah. um, uh, near the Himalayas and near Pakistan. We drove all the way down to through Rajasthan to our partner hospital in Udaipur, and it was about seven hundred and fifty miles. Wow. And you, did you do well with the fundraising? We raised fifteen thousand dollars, which was great. Uh, That's great. Yeah, so that was great. Um, we've, you know, got we've we received a grant last year, which was really helpful, and from Lush Cosmetics, who um, are really really active in in animal animal rights, and and uh, they were great about it. And and so we you know we have a lot of we have some fundraising coming up. I wanted to do another rickshaw, rickshaw ride, but. My partner said, you know, something that's kind of, that's not really something <laughs> that main, you know, the mainstream would do. So you have to think of something that's a little bit more mainstream. So we're actually, we're doing a trip in next year in September, end of September, um, uh, Calcutta, Shimla and Darjeeling and that area and Sikkim uh, to leading a group to go visit local NGOs and see how, um, you know, the different charities are handling the problem. So we're doing that. So that's a bit more um, palatable for, for people, I think, than getting into a rickshaw and driving, which is pretty crazy, actually, and, and completely dangerous. But I have to say, I, I, I don't think I've had as much fun as, as that ever, ever, ever. Well, that's yeah, that was extreme. Yeah, it is extreme, that's for sure. And of course, before I forget, I wanted to thank you for pointing me towards sapiajewelry.com. And I really, I wasn't joking when I said that's my one-stop shopping for Christmas this year. Oh, it's the most beautiful thing. Well, Satya um, is uh, a big philanthropist, and uh, she's always doing um, fundraising for different charities. And so she's a friend of mine from yoga. And so I approached her, and so she said, oh, yeah, let's do something. So what I'm doing for the holidays with Satya uh, jewelry.com is I picked up, I wore a ton of her stuff, by the way. It's not just like, oh, you know, struggling to find my favorites. I, I have a ton of her, her jewelry. I picked out quite a few favorites of mine. So anybody who I'm from December 2nd through 9th, um, you go on satyajewelry.com. If you pick one of my picks, you put in, um, the uh, the code and thirty percent of every purchase goes towards uh, to Animal People Alliance, 
which is um, which is great. I mean, she, and she's so generous and 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 just such a nice person. That's wonderful. We'll make sure that's put in the show Perfect. notes, the link and the code. Perfect. Uh, once again, I think that the work that you and Paul and the others are doing with Animal People Alliance is incredible, and I wish you the best of luck with it. If people wanted to know more about the organization or if they wanted to contribute to the organization, where can they go to do well, that? Well, they can go to animalpeoplealliance.com. And I do a blog every six or eight weeks. It's up there and it has a it has a link to how you can donate. We do have a Facebook page, Animal People Alliance. And that's that's pretty much it for now. But we know we, we you know, we're gonna have all the information for, for our trip to India in two thousand and sixteen. So anybody who wants to, to come along and, and see see India <laughs> um, and see Calcutta, which is pretty wild. And and actually it's the beginning of puja season, which is the time to go. So it's uh, we're gonna be um, at the very uh, at the very beginning of Durga Puja, which is the big puja, which is celebrations through the streets and fireworks and god wow. gods and goddesses and all sorts of stuff. So it's pretty interesting. It's an interesting city. Wow. Yeah. Well, before you go, I, I know I'm going to get flooded with emails if I don't at least ask you it, when you or the Go Go's will be touring again. Um, well, the Go Go's have their last tour. Um, it's uh, next summer from I think it's the month of August we're touring, and that will be the final tour. Um, myself, I have dates in the spring, um, but that's pretty much it. You know, that's that's. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm most of the time I'm going to be on this side of the planet. I'm talking to you from Bangkok. So um, I'm not in, not retired, but I'm going to be focusing a lot more on on Animal People Alliance from here. Well, then I got lucky. In September <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. OK, great. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Belinda. I really appreciate oh, it. And best of luck with your organization. Oh, thank you so much, Sheldon. See you later. OK, bye-bye. bye bye. For social psychologists who study the effects of stress on the human mind, the word catastrophe has a very specific meaning. It refers to events such as floods, wars, or famine, whose key feature is that they affect large numbers of people. Although often devastating to psychological and physical health, there exists a silver lining to these occurrences. That is, that we often see the best in people during the worst of times. One such instance has only recently come to light, despite the fact that it happened during one of the most memorable catastrophic events in human history, World War II. On the morning of July 27, 1940, Chiyone Sugihara, known to locals by the nickname Simpo, was awakened by the sound of a crowd outside his bedroom window. This particular bedroom wasn't in an average dwelling. That's because Simpo Sugihara wasn't an average man. He was vice-consul for the Empire of Japan and Lithuania, and the unruly crowd outside his window was made up of hundreds of Jewish refugees, each of whom had arrived to make a request of Sugihara 
that could mean the difference between life and death. At this point in the war, Poland was occupied by Germany in the west and Russia in the east. Although they'd found temporary protection in Lithuania, word was spreading quickly that the Nazis, Japan's future allies, were making their way to the capital, and rumor had it Jews were being systematically rounded up and killed in many parts of Europe. Fearing for their lives, the plan was to obtain exit visas from the Japanese consulate and escape east through Soviet Russia. Once out of the path of invading Nazis, plans could be made for the future. Although visa requests may seem routine by today's standards, it was anything but simple to Sugihara. First, assisting Jews at that point in Japan's history could easily have led to extreme social stigma, not to mention derail any career aspirations he might have. More pressing was the fact that in order to issue visas of any sort, Sugihara would need to obtain permission from the Japanese foreign embassy. He knew this would be a tough sell, so he wired a detailed request to his superiors, stressing the dire situation many of these Jews were facing. The reply was swift and to the point. No exit visas were to be issued unless a number of immigration criteria were met. For one, the applicant must show proof of sufficient funds to cover his journey to the claim destination. Worse, the applicant must also provide documentation of a valid end-destination visa permission from whatever country he planned to immigrate to. Sugihara knew that none of the refugees could meet these criteria, so he wired to his government again explaining the situation and to formally request further instruction. The second reply repeated the procedures in even plainer terms. Tortured by the sight of the crowd that had been growing outside the consulate for several days, which included young men, mothers with babies, and many wailing and pleading hour after hour, their hands clasped in prayer, Sugihara made the difficult decision to wire a third request. Within minutes, a third reply arrived, this time with strict orders to not ask again. To say that he experienced a crisis of conscience is an understatement. What was at stake here were his career and his family's future on one side, and the possible imprisonment and literal extermination of hundreds of innocent people on the other. Making matters worse, Sugihara would be committing a crime if he proceeded, meaning that he could easily be called home to face criminal prosecution and even punishment if he helped. He was, after all, a government employee, not to mention part of a strict collectivist culture who obeyed orders and social norms as a matter of personal and family honor. The isolationist Japan Sugihara was born into didn't contain the sorts of individual expression and free flow of opinions in today's Japanese society, which makes the next part of the story even more remarkable. Despite the risk to himself and his family, and in direct opposition to the orders he had been given, Sugihara consulted with his wife and then made a fateful decision. He agreed to offer exit visas to all of the Jewish refugees who were still arriving in droves. For the next month, he suspended all other official and private activities and began the process of handwriting 
hundreds of exit visas. Forgoing sleep, not even stopping to eat, Sugihara worked 18 to 20 hour days, tirelessly fulfilling requests for visas. His eyes blurred, his hands cramping from carefully writing in the small, complicated Japanese characters required, he was a man obsessed with life-saving work, writing up hundreds of visas each day and stamping each with the official seal of the Japanese consulate. His wife and several men enlisted as assistants organized the requests and then delivered the life-saving visas to families waiting outside. Most of the refugees had no money, and only about half had passports. None had end visas from the countries they claimed as their destination. Sugihara ignored all of these facts and approved any and all applications that came to him, accepting even scraps of paper with handwritten destinations as if they were official documents. After four weeks of continuing this grueling schedule, word soon arrived from the home office in Japan that Sugihara was to report to Japanese headquarters immediately. The Russians were taking over in Lithuania, and the Japanese consulate would be shut down. He knew he would soon have to face the consequences of his part in saving the Jews in Lithuania. But as his wife and children packed up their belongings and prepared for the long journey home, Sugihara did not stop. He continued writing and stamping visas. On the ride to the train station, he continued his work. On the train platform, many more visas were processed, each being thrust into the eager hands of the throngs of people crowding around him. Sickly and exhausted, and with time soon running out, Sugihara continued to write visas from his seat on the train as other passengers boarded, refugees hanging onto the windows and running alongside the train as it slowly began to move. The last any of these people would see of Simpo Sugihara was the image of an exhausted, thoroughly defeated man standing in the entrance of the train. As he began to pull away from the station, Sugihara bowed deeply, asking the remaining Jewish refugees for forgiveness that he could not do more to help them. Although conditions made a precise count impossible, historians now estimate that Simpo Sugihara single-handedly saved the lives of over 6,000 European Jews. More than 40,000 people alive today as descendants of these refugees owe their very existence to one man and his act of defiance in falling his conscience against orders and personal consequences. Sugihara and his family survived the war and even made it through imprisonment in a POW camp in Romania. But by the time he was reassigned to a new government position, Word had reached Japan of his actions to help the Jews. His wife, Yukiko Sugihara, later told people that the foreign ministry dismissed her husband, quote, because of that incident in Lithuania. His professional career over, Sugihara took menial jobs to support his family for the rest of his life. He only rarely spoke of his experiences at the consulate, and his friends and extended family didn't know of his heroic actions until after his death. At Sugihara's funeral in 1986, many of them were shocked when hundreds of Jews arrived in a delegation to honor the man who had saved their lives and the lives of their friends and family. Yad Vashem recognized Chiune Simpo Sugihara with their vaulted Righteous Among the Nations Award 
the only such recognition to be given to a person of Japanese descent. And on October 9th, 2000, asteroid 25893 was renamed Sugihara in his honor. Perhaps most importantly, although he was never officially forgiven by his government, the Japanese Ministry of Education recently changed its policy requiring all Japanese school children to learn the story of their countryman, Simpo Sugihara, and his brave actions to save a group of people simply because it was the right thing to do. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and this is The Good News. Today's story is about a waitress, Liz Woodward, being kind to two firefighters who then paid it forward to help out her family. After a long night on the job, the only thing these two New Jersey firefighters expected when they stopped at Route 130 Diner in Delran, New Jersey, was a good meal. While enjoying their breakfast, firefighter Paul Hollings of the Hainsport Fire Department and Tim Young of the Mount Holy Fire Department were talking about the details of their 12-hour day, putting out a massive fire that broke out in a North Brunswick, New Jersey warehouse the previous morning. Woodward overheard them talking and decided to pick up their $15 tab. On the back of the check, she wrote, Your breakfast is on me today. Thank you for all that you do, for serving others, and for running into the places everyone else runs away from. No matter your role, you are courageous, brave, and strong. Thank you for being bold and badass every day. Fueled by fire and driven by courage, what an example you are. Get some rest. Hollings was taken aback by the kind act. He said, I started tearing up and it made me feel good. Us firefighters are wanted. People care about us, he said. Young posted the note on Facebook along with a call for his friends to visit the diner and to tip big if they ever had Woodward as a waitress. Before he knew it, it was being shared everywhere. Her simple but generous act inspired the firefighters to pay it forward. After they learned that Woodward was trying to raise money for her quadriplegic father, who is in need of a wheelchair-accessible van, both Young and Hullings decided to help out. If we have to do a fundraiser, we'll do whatever we can to help, said Hollings. You see, Woodward's father, Steve, had a brain aneurysm rupture in 2010 and has since become a quadriplegic. He spends his nights and all but a few hours of his day in his hospital bed, unable to see outside his bedroom window. Though he has a wheelchair, the family has no way to transport him outside of their home so that he can interact with the outside world. He has not been able to receive the kind of consistent rehab his body needs and his recovery requires as they have no way of getting him to the facilities that can help. When Woodward asked her dad what a van would allow him to do, he said he could get out. He wouldn't be a prisoner of this hospital bed. He has spent the last four and a half years feeling this way. She asked what having a new set of wheels would change. He said everything. The family needed a van. Countless surgical, nursing, and rehab teams have collectively saved her dad's life throughout this process with brain surgeries and numerous procedures. After 567 days away from home in hospitals and nursing homes, the family has been lucky to be able to care for him in their own home for the past two years. 
Woodward started a GoFundMe page called Woodward Strong, where she tells the community some things about her dad. Her dad grew up in Riverside and graduated from Holy Cross in 1971, where his fondest memories are working behind the scenes with the stage crew. He's an Eagle Scout, played the stand-up bass in a bluegrass band, and helped run the disaster recovery department at PHH Mortgage for years. He attended Mount St. Mary's. He went into the seminary twice, but of course didn't become a priest or his family wouldn't be here. He loves the Philadelphia Phillies, Eagles, and Flyers, is obsessed with Pepper Jack grilled cheese sandwiches, and can sing along with his Doc Watson CD for hours. He used to ride a motorcycle in the before kids era, has had a lifelong relationship with Boost, and loves surrounding himself with positive quotes and laughter. He has become pretty close with his friends on Castle, NCIS, and Bones, and shakes his hospital bed with belly laughs while watching Ellen DeGeneres in The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. He played a remarkable role in developing the softball program in Burlington Township, where many remember him in his glory. He was the ultimate softball dad, and to call him passionate would be an understatement. He was the vice president of the BT Girls Softball Association and a coach to hundreds of girls for over 10 years. He loved that it was his life. Play hard, play smart, have fun were the words they spoke on their softball team before heading onto the field. Her dad had a way of spreading the love of the game and teaching girls of all ages how to learn from their mistakes and how to be unstoppable. He taught them to believe in themselves. He was always empowering and they learned what confidence was. He was encouraging and positive and showed them all how to focus, endure, and prevail. He taught them the importance of sportsmanship and patience, how to fight, and how to never give up. He is the husband to Woodward's hero and inspiration to all, that her mother is the true reason her dad is still here, and her commitment to her wedding vows and purpose here on this earth as a nurse are evident each and every day that they witness the true meaning of for better or for worse. Her father is a fighter, but it is her mother whose relentless pursuit gives them all strength. He is also the father to four, one boy and three girls, and since his injury, all of their lives have changed dramatically. They have rented a van before, twice actually, so that her dad could attend his father's funeral and his daughter's graduation, since transport isn't covered unless their trip is deemed medically necessary. And it's a very expensive out-of-pocket, even to rent for a few hours. It was the first time since his aneurysm ruptured that he was able to interact with family members and friends he hadn't seen in years. They watched their father smile, and they witnessed joy and accomplishment. And they watched his memory strengthen with every person who left his side in disbelief that he could remember exactly who they were and what got them in trouble back in the day. See, her dad is still Steve. He's just Steve who survived a brain injury and now uses a wheelchair. He deserves to be Steve and not just a patient or a number on a chart. He needs a van. A brand new rear entry van could cost them sixty to $80,000, especially since he needs a hydraulic lift. And even used vans can cost over $20,000. To make matters worse, her father lost his job during the economic recession in 2008, lost his independence in 2010, and then they lost their home to foreclosure in 2014. But they refused to lose hope. 
Steve has never lost his spirit, his humor, or his determination. He has never lost his fight, and he has never lost sight of his dreams. His ability to wake up with a smile and continue to see the good in whatever comes their way is an honor to witness and serves as a reminder to be grateful every day. The Woodward Strong asked for money to go towards a handicapped accessible van for Steve. If they surpass their goal, any additional funds would go directly towards equipment and resources relating to his care. So back to our firefighter. Young didn't stop with just posting that check. He wrote another post highlighting the GoFundMe campaign that I've just told you about that Woodward started in December to pay for this wheelchair accessible van for her father. Turns out the young lady who gave us a free meal is really the one that could use the help, Young wrote. Since then, Young and more than 1,700 other people, mostly strangers who had heard about her decision to pay for the firefighter's meal, have donated. The GoFundMe page was originally hoping to raise $17,000 and has now collected more than $85,000. Woodward posted a lengthy message on her own Facebook account praising the work of firefighters and asking others to pay it forward. Look for those opportunities because they are everywhere. You can make a difference. It doesn't always have to be an elaborate production or effort. It is always the little things that have the greatest impact, she wrote. What a wonderful message to remember this holiday season. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. Well, kids, that's the show. As always, thanks for listening and for helping to spread the word about the podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or the Stitcher app or by RSS feed on our website. And don't forget to check out the show notes for links to the Animal People Alliance as well as to Satya Jewelry so you can learn more about Belinda's nonprofit and how you can help. And... Be sure and tune in next week because we have a real treat for you. The return of Amanda DeVal. She'll be coming back to guest co-host as Marilyn takes off to Hawaii for a well-deserved vacation. So until then, you've been shell-shocked.